Many of you know Cole Huffman as senior minister of First Evan, First Evangelical Church, truly great church in this city. Uh, Cole is uh, from North Alabama and got one of his many degrees from Dallas Seminary and his doctorate, uh, earned doctorate from Beeson. Uh, look forward to books that he's in the process of writing. Uh, Cole is um, father of five, Lynn and he, a strong couple, a witness. Three things I want to say about Cole. First, he is a, a man of prayer and meets in different prayer groups. Um, I have the privilege of meeting with him weekly in prayer, and Sandy Wilson meets with him uh, each month in prayer. Second thing I want to say about Cole is that he is a discipler. He came to First of Ann in men's ministry, spent many years in men's ministry until they called him as senior minister. He's on the board of discipling men. He is the frequent teacher at Downline Ministries, and he personally meets each month with a number of guys that he's personally discipling. That's the second thing I want to say about him. And the third thing, it's a refreshing and amazing to be around someone who is senior minister of a 4,000-member church, and he just just doesn't really phase him. He, he's a guy that loves Jesus, and he's a guy that walks the talk. He's spoken to us before, so I want us to do something we normally don't do, and that is give a big Second Presbyterian welcome to Cole. Thank you, Don. And I'm glad to have the opportunity to speak to you this morning, chiefly on prayer. Why prayer? Because I have one shot with you, and prayer is a perpetually relevant subject for every believer, every follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whether you're well-versed in this subject or you are like Miss Utah, and I quote, needing to figure out how to create education better for yourself and others with this. Bless your heart. Uh, we all have more to learn about prayer. We all have more experience with prayer that we can, that we can log. I was just uh, counseling someone in my office yesterday who was telling me about an experience of prayer uh, they had that I realized I've never had. And I, I was teachable to what this uh, person was, was telling me because I still have a lot to experience and learn. I was telling Mike, uh, my wife and I will be in London in a little over a month. I've been uh, given the opportunity to take a course there on, uh, this sounds exciting, I know, hold on to your seat, Medieval and Reformation Pastoral Ministry. So we're, we're going all the way over to England for this. Uh, but I'm looking forward to that for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons in the reading that I'm doing and preparing for the course is because I'm, I'm learning about the practice of prayer in medieval times, and uh, to put it more uh, contemporarily, that will give me more um, sockets in my wrench set uh, that is in my toolbox, and I'm looking forward to that experience for that reason. There are two primary passages I'd like us to be in. So if you have a Bible, uh, go to, both are going to be John's writings. We're going to go to the Gospel of John first, John chapter 14. We'll also look at a section of John 15. 
So turn first to uh, John chapters 14 and 15. And then we're going to spend the rest of our time in 1 John, the letter, chapter 5. So if you want to find both places, you can mark 1 John 5. We'll come back to that. We'll start in John 14. Uh, As you're turning to John 14, let me say for context about 1 John, so I don't have to say it when we get there. The corridor of um, the Gospel of John you're turning to, John chapters 14 and 17, I've become persuaded through the years that 1 John as a letter is an extended meditation on what we call Jesus' upper room discourse, particularly John chapter 15. John is listening to Jesus talk about the vine and the branches, that very familiar metaphor, but a little bit mysterious. And 1 John, again, I've become persuaded through the years that 1 John is really an extended meditation on that vine and branch analogy, what Jesus was saying about that. When you read 1 John in that, with that uh, in mind, it, it makes a lot more sense. And so 1 John hones in particularly on what it means to abide, abiding in Jesus, which is the point of the vine and the branches analogy in John 15. Whatever it means to abide, abiding and praying are linked such that you don't do one to its full effect without the other. Now, I'm putting that very precisely. Whatever... It means to abide in Jesus. Abiding and praying are linked such that you don't do one to its full effect without the other. If I'm abiding to its full effect, that's not without prayer. If I am praying to its full effect, that is not without abiding. They're linked. And we'll talk about this this morning. When you think about prayer to its full effect, what is that but God being responsive to our petitions? Prayer to its full effect, prayer that is full on, all in, is not just this monologue and it's not a soliloquy, it's, it's God responding. And I see the response and know it. There's not a man in this room who prays who doesn't want God to respond to his prayer according to his petitions, which is just a very wordy way of saying something very simple. And that is that none of us want unanswered prayer. None of us want the experience of frustration in prayer that is feeling I'm not getting through feeling that something is hampering this engagement with God, feeling that my requests don't matter as much to God as they matter to me, feeling like the desires of my heart are just left hanging. And so, I must be doing something wrong. Or, God must not have really meant it when He said, I can ask Him for anything in His name and He'll do it. And where did he say that? You've turned to it. He said it in John chapter 14. 
Let's begin John chapter 14, looking at, uh, we'll just start at verse 12. Jesus, of course, is speaking, Truly, truly, I say to you, to His disciples, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in My name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask Me anything in My name, I will do it. That's carte blanche. And it's a remarkable thing to say when you consider His resources are limitless. As the prophet Jeremiah said, famous words, nothing is too difficult for you. The door of request is flung open so wide it breaks off its hinges. This is like the receiver being so open in the end zone, he has time to inventory today's game attendance before the ball arrives. That open. In these words that we just read, Jesus says He is so available and receptive and attendant to His people's desires, but, but our experience calls this into question all the time. I asked Him for that in His name. I requested this from Him for years. And he didn't do it for me. Now, where we picked up reading, do you realize that what Jesus is saying here in verses 13 and 14 in particular is itself in response to a request? If you go back and you look in verse 8, you see something very interesting. Philip says to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus is teaching about going to the Father And Philip says, hey, Lord, I want to see the Father. Could you show Him to me, please? That's a request made of Jesus. And Jesus' answer to Philip in verse 9 and following is essentially this. Philip, when you see me, you see the Father. And yet that isn't precisely what Philip has asked of God. He's been looking at Jesus for three years. He's seen the Son. He wants to see the Father. Let us see the Father. Which wasn't spoken in testing or unbelief or confusion, but genuine desire. And Jesus says to Philip, let's commonize it. It doesn't work like that, bro. Okay. I know you also want to see the Father, Philip. But you are seeing Him in me and through me just as others are going to see me in you and through you. And that's how it works. That's what He tells Him. And that's how it still works. You will run into people, if you're out talking about your faith with people, you will occasionally encounter somebody who will say something along the lines to you of, you know, if I could just see Jesus... That'd make a difference. He'd just show up. Well, what do you say to that? The answer, it's not entirely satisfying because of who we can be. 
But the answer is the same, as Jesus said to his disciples. It's not apples to apples, but it's apples nevertheless. Jesus said to his disciples, you want to see the Father? Look at me. Jesus says to his followers, people are going to see Jesus, they're going to look at you. They will see me in and through you. So the words of Jesus, just looking at verses 13 and 14 here in John chapter 14, the words of Jesus concerning requests of God are in response to a request, but note the response doesn't exactly fit the request. I want to see the Father. Well, when you're looking at me, you see the Father. Yeah, but that's not what I want to see. I want to see the, I want to see the Father. It wasn't being dishonoring. So then how does verses 13 and 14 work? Because within the context, Philip has asked for something, and what he's getting in response is not exactly what he asked for. Interesting to note the context this is in. How does verses 13 and 14 work? It's carte blanche, but is there a contingency? There actually is. If you look over in chapter 15, same evening, same conversation, chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So there's a contingency to prayer. Prayer is still carte blanche. We have uh, dinner table discussions with our children, 16 to 6. It's a pretty good Sunday school reach <laughs> sometimes. We were actually having this discussion Oh, a week, week and a half ago. And one of my children said, can I ask God for a million dollars? And I said, absolutely. And I'll tell you why as we go on, why I would answer that way. But then the child, being very perceptive, also being a pastor's kid, said, well, what happens if he doesn't give it? <laughs> Good question. Indeed, what happens? Prayer is still carte blanche, but it's carte blanche contingent upon how God's glory is going to work in and through my life. It is contingent upon my abiding in Him. And I'll tell you what abiding means as we go. This is a good point to go over to 1 John. So from John chapters 14 and 15, look over at 1 John chapter 5, and you're going to see John reflecting on what he heard Jesus teach that night. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. This is verse 13. 1 John chapter 5, verse 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. So again, if you see 1 John as an extended meditation on the teaching that Jesus gives in the upper room 
John chapters 14 through 17, particularly John 15's emphasis on the vine and the branches, then John is saying to believers, you know, he ended his gospel saying, I've written these things so that you might believe. John chapter 20. 1 John 5, he's writing to believers. The audience is specifically the church. And he says in verse 13, I write these things to those who do believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I find it helpful to define eternal life as true relationship with the only true God. That's eternal life. When you see eternal life, Jesus holding it out, the apostles referring to it, they are talking about true relationship with the only true God. That is eternal life. Because it's never ending. Because the relationship is true, because God is true, having validated His truthfulness both by external and internal witness to Jesus, we therefore have something which is free and unhindered access to the only true God. And that access is through prayer. Being in relationship with His Son. Note the terms in verses 14 and 15 here in verse John 5. Ask, hear, request. We call this prayer. (laughs) God hearing our asking and requesting is prayer. Now prayer is more than just asking and requesting of God, but notice what John does in these three verses. 1 John 5, verses 13 through 15. Having identified that he's writing to believers in verse 13, people of eternal life, he then in verses 14 and 15 underscores how this true relational reality with the only true God is of such an intimate and affectionate nature that he hears everything you and I bring to him And He acts upon our requests. He is responsive to us. That's what John is saying. But, as I said a moment ago, but our experience calls this into question. Here's one of the things you learn when you study 1 John, taking the whole letter. When you look at 1 John, you realize that All believers have intimacy with God and all believers have fellowship with God, but not all believers enjoy this intimacy or this fellowship, this affection of God. Enjoying it is confidence. Confidence toward God, which John has a lot to say about in his first letter. But not all of us have confidence toward God. We don't actualize what we actually have in relationship with Him, in our experience. Notice again verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. If you're studying 1 John as a whole, you go back and you note all the places where confidence appears, such as chapter 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. That's 2.28. 3.21. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And then you get to chapter 5, verse 14. This is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. 
what confidence toward Him is in 1 John is the effect of obedience in practice. And this is what gets us to what abiding means. Abiding is responding to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him. And the full effect of abiding is that I have confidence before God. If I'm responding to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him, I have confidence before God, not as something I am earning, not as something arrogant. Confidence and arrogance are not the same thing. You see the difference uh, every football season. Right? I mean, you follow a team, as I do. You follow a, a conference. You follow a league. Confidence lacks the swagger and the grandstanding and the boasting of self-commendation that is arrogance. What I mean with the football reference is that every season you watch this happen, you get a team that has a loudmouth receiver or a loudmouth quarterback. They like to talk trash in the media. They like to talk trash on the field. I mean, no sooner have they done a play, you watch that head is wagging. They're talking. Half their fan base can't stand them. The other half is, I don't know, brain dead, you know. (laughs) The player is brash. The player is arrogant. And then... He gets into that game that you know he's eventually going to get into where his talking ain't working because the other team is kicking his tail. And all of a sudden, he can't do anything. He can't connect to a receiver. Guys are talking at him when they're going off the field because arrogance is cocky, but it really has no confidence. Confidence goes out and executes the play. That's confident play. The aim of the passes is true. The handoffs are crisp and firm. The, the checkoffs are, are correct. That's confident play. John is saying here that the function of true relationship with the only true God is confident prey, if you want to put it that way. Meaning what? Meaning the effect of obedience to God in practice is confidence toward God. That's what it means to abide. Again, as he put it in chapter 2, verse 28 of 1 John, and now little children abide in Him, so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Here's the connection. For John, confidence toward God is connected to abiding. And what does it mean to abide? It means I respond to God's greater love for me. Everything I have is at the initiative of God. I don't have a relationship with Him except that He wants to have a relationship with me. I love Him because He first loved me. Where do we learn that? 1 John 4. I respond to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him an obedience that is as much doctrinal and relational as it is moral. And so here's how verses 14, now we're going to start applying it and putting it in real life contexts. Here's how verses 14 and 15 of 1 John 5 work with 
The rest of 1 John is a backdrop with John chapters 14 and 15 as a backdrop that we read. Putting it all together, I'm going to give you an if-then statement. If I'm abiding, if I'm responding to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him, then God becomes all the more responsive to what I ask of Him. I'm not earning it. I'm not creating the scenario where God has to respond. There's no manipulation. He is a God you cannot manipulate. You cannot cajole. If I'm abiding, if I'm responding to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him, then God becomes all the more responsive to what I ask of Him. Now, I have lived in evangelical, Bible-centered churches long enough to know that a statement like that gets processed at least a dozen different ways, including among us here in this room this morning. Some of you hear me say, if I'm abiding, if I'm responding to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him, then God is more responsive to what I ask of Him. Some of you hear this and you think immediately of your disappointment with God that He has not responded yet to what you have fervently asked of Him and what you really want Him to do for you, that thing you have prayed for hard, as we say. I prayed hard for this. And so you will go to finding fault with yourself. I must not understand His will. I must not be obedient enough. I must be resistant to Him in some way that is just not clear to me. I don't understand. I wish somebody could show me. Others of you hear me say, if I'm abiding, if I'm responding to God's greater love for me with greater obedience to Him, then God is more responsive to what I ask of Him. You hear this and think immediately of your disappointment with God that He has not done for you what you are ardently hoping and asking Him to do. But rather than finding fault with yourself, you go toward the other side, which is to find fault with God. He just makes this too difficult. Who can understand, really, anything that He wants? I think God just leads us on. Why shouldn't I have this good thing that I'm asking Him for? Etc. In our churches, these are the poles of reaction. The poles are, God doesn't seem to me as responsive as John is saying, and it must be because I'm a bad Christian, or it must be because He's really not a good God. People live on those extremes. There are other nuances and reactions on the spectrum, as well as probably in a room this size for some of you, not having much reaction to this at all because you hardly interact with God in prayer anymore if you ever did. That might be because years ago you asked God to heal someone and they died. And so you went, well, that's that. A lot of good that did. You know, as men, we're very pragmatic. I asked, she died. Nothing more to say. Or you just don't know what to say to God about things. Or you've been around Christians who are always celebrating 
God's answers to their prayers. Or you, you came up in an environment where if people couldn't speak to answered prayer, there was some embarrassment, you know. And so maybe you've become sort of like the older brother in the, in the parable of the prodigal, you know. Here I am doing all this for you, Lord. You've never given me anything to show for all my hard work and effort for you. All this labor-intensive obedience that I'm putting out here. Let me call a time out right here and remind you of what verse 13 in 1 John 5 says. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. That you may know what? That you may know how intimately, affectionately desirous of you God is, regardless of your hang-ups. If you're a redeemed man, then He has taken you into companionship with Himself and no longer condemns you nor holds the threat of condemnation over you anymore. That's what it means, verse 13, in practice. And it is just because of that reality that He wants you and I to enjoy confidence toward Him. Which has so much to do with our response to what He has done for us. But what about when you ask God for something you really want and it doesn't happen? What about those times? I think that there is not just a content to prayer, but there's a context as well. And we think of prayer, we think of the content. The what we're asking for, the how we are presenting ourselves. What we don't think as much about is that there is a context we pray from. A context we pray with. To every prayer, there's a a content, a core, and there's a context. All of us are formed more than we realize by our context of life. Your family situation or your upbringing, both. Church experiences you've had. What you've been taught. What you assume. How you relate to authority, etc. And all of that context affects our praying. It's the context of our praying. All of this context frames how we present our requests of God. What we think we can ask of Him. What we think we need and must have. And what we do not need and must never have put upon us. You can think of it this way. In every request you make of God, there is a solid core. You may or may not be aware of it. Romans 8, to bring Paul in on this discussion, where he talks about the Spirit groaning, the too deep for words. There's a solid core to everything you request of God being in Christ. Because you have the Holy Spirit of God and He is interceding on your behalf. The groaning's too deep for words. He knows the deep things. The Spirit of God knows what that solid core is to every request you make of God. And that's part of our confidence before Him. Knowing that He really knows what I need. He really knows what I want from Him even when I don't or don't know how to put it. Do you realize that even your stupidest prayer is safe with Him? The things that you look back on 
and you say, man, I can't believe I was asking for that at one time. You remember Jesus' story about the friend at midnight? It's such an odd story. It's Luke chapter 11. And once I finally understood that story, I always got the point at the end, you know. Which of you, if his son asks for, you know, bread, is going to give him a stone, etc. But I never understood the story that the point came from. The, the, the story was so odd. And then when I understood the story... It took away all the anxiety that I used to experience in praying when I realized Jesus' teaching that God is a completely trustworthy God. That the point of the story and what happens in it is that God's own honor is at stake in His dealings with us. And as such, as He says in Luke 11, I don't have to fear in asking Him for a fish that I'll get a snake. Or even a snakehead fish. Remember that one that was out at Patriot Lake that time or wherever that thing was? Asking him for an egg and getting a scorpion. In other words, I don't have to be concerned in how I'm presenting my request to God because He knows me that well. I don't have to be concerned that if I'm asking for something that later on I determine, "Ah, I really didn't want that after all, that He's going to give it to me because, well, you asked for it. That's the last thing I have to be concerned about when I understand the character of the God I'm petitioning. But again, to the point. In every request we make of God, there's a solid core. Surrounding that core, whatever it is you're asking, God, please let this person live. Please heal my friend. Please um, allow me to be part of something great in my life. Please grant that this thing that I've, that I've so put so much time into is successful. Whatever it is, there's a core to that request and then there's a context. So you've got a solid core to the request. You've got all this so- soft context around it. And that's your life. Your present circumstances. Your assumptions about something. How it ought to be. How it ought not to be. Your desires. Your fears. Your goals your interests, your frustrations, your biases, your hurts, your comparisons. We're much more in touch with this soft context from which we make requests of God than we are the solid core of the reality that we want from God. I'll give you an example of what I'm talking about. In college, I got enamored with a certain girl. She didn't go to my school, two different universities, but I had friends at her university, and as I would go visit the friends at her university, I got introduced to her, and it was really, as I look back on it, the first time I was ever really smitten with a girl. I was about a junior in college, and she was beautiful, she was godly, she was friendly. And I told some friends, I went back to my university and I, and I announced to my friends, I have met my wife. I'm going to marry this girl. And my wife's name is Lynn. And that wasn't this girl's name. <laughs> so it, suffice to say, it did not happen. And my wife, Lynn, is also beautiful, godly, 
friendly. But I confidently asked God for that girl at the other university. And I was just sure that it had to be her. I had been, uh, I had been good in dating. I had waited. I had kept myself for a girl like this. This girl that I'd met at the other university. And I was going into ministry and knew that I could not have just, just any girl that could return my affection. While in my case, that was great. <laughs> I knew that I had to have somebody that could share this life as a pastor with me. So my standards were very high. This was the first girl who seemed to hit every possible thing I could have on my punch list. She was not interested in me, except for that, you know, except that she wasn't as interested in me as I was in her. And keeping with her character, she so kindly told me that, and I was just, I was crushed. And being crushed, guess who I was disappointed with? God. And I had all this disappointment to process. And I would go to God and I would say, how can she not be right for me? I don't get it. Why don't you make her like me? You know? Lord, doesn't 1 John 5, 14 and 15 say, and I would quote the verses, how could this not be your will? The core, now let's step back and evaluate. The core of my praying was good. It was right for me to want the kind of girl that fit the high standard that I maintained. It was right for me to want to be married. But looking back, what happened, the reason I was disappointed was I was more in touch with the context I was praying from than what was really at the core of my praying. The context of my life at that time in college was that I went to college assuming I would meet my wife. I actually did. Senior year is where Lynn entered the picture. But I was a junior, and so I was getting anxious that it wasn't going to happen. I was beginning to feel the pressure of unmet expectations, my own expectations. Besides that, my buddies all had girlfriends, and I did not. And I was feeling lonely and left out. Thus adding a sense of urgency to the mix. And I just really liked that girl. And it was easy in really liking her and the first girl I really liked to just be smitten with her, taken, completely captivated and to make a claim, you know, that's got to be her. Well, these and other contextual matters framed my request of God in such a way that I thought the prayer wasn't answered unless that particular girl became my serious girlfriend. And that's because I was much more in touch with the context I was praying from, the desires and the frustrations and the fears of the moment. I was much more in touch with that context than I was the real core of my praying. The real core of my praying were good things. Things that God indeed wanted to provide for me, but just not her and not right then. If you're going to be careful about anything in prayer, be careful not to confuse the context you're praying from 
with what you're praying for. I am not saying be careful what you pray for. You've heard that, right? I mentioned that a moment ago. Terrible counsel. When you tell somebody, be careful what you pray for, you know, God might give it to you. Awful counsel. Please don't say that to anybody else if you ever have. The reason is it flies in the face of everything that Jesus taught us about who His Father is. And how many people has that little piece of debris created fear for bringing anything and everything to a perfectly good Heavenly Father who will not give you a stone when you need bread? I mean, I've run into people in pastoral counseling who believe that. Well, I'm afraid to bring this to God because He may give it to me. Why are you afraid? Do you not understand the character and the nature of your father? John says, because we have eternal life, we can ask God for anything. He hears us in whatever we ask. Verse 15, chapter 5 of 1 John. But where we get disappointed with ourselves and with God is when we confuse the context we're praying from with what we are praying for at the core. You know, we'll plead with God to keep a loved one of ours alive. Why do we do that? Well, we do that because we don't want them to die. Duh. And we're very much in touch with that. But also because we don't want to be alone. I mean, that's also part of it too. We can't imagine the goodness of God in our lives without this person around anymore. That's part of our context. We ask God to heal a disease. Why? Well, again, duh, we don't want to be sick. Who wants to be sick? And yet... We also do it because, particularly in a Western American context, we equate wellness and happiness. We simply don't believe that if we're not well, we can be happy in life. And that also fuels why we pray. It's not just about being well. It's about so much more besides. God has expressed His way and His will to us. He says in verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. What is His will? His will is that you would find in Him the ultimate companion who will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, not just that He won't, He can't leave you or forsake you. He has bound Himself to you that strongly. And He's also expressed that His will for us is sometimes to experience losses and troubles in this world. We don't like it to be that way. We don't want it to be that way. But He has purposes in those times and those things. Ask according to His will. So many Christians take that as a where's Waldo puzzle. Or, you know, like playing Marco Polo in the pool. It's summer and my kids are in the pool a lot. Marco Polo, you know that little game? Am I getting warmer? Colder? i got to try find God's will in this deal, you know. I mean, where is it? Marco? Oh, Polo? Oh. <laughs> Praying according to God's will is not a hit and miss search. It really isn't. 
It is leaning into the character of God as the only one who can truly fulfill and satisfy the deepest needs and longings of my heart and mind and life. The one in whom I want to abide. I want to respond to His greater love for me, greater than my love for Him. I want to respond to His greater love for me with greater obedience to Him, recognizing that He has already been wondrously receptive to me and that I didn't even know to ask Him for Jesus and He gave Him to me anyway. Why? Because Jesus Himself prayed according to God's will. We've seen Him there in the garden praying, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, what you will. What was Jesus doing? Was He launching into the search for God's will? You know, is it the cross or not? Well, maybe if I hear a cricket chirp three times in the next minute, I'll know it's the cross. Now, that's all that nonsense that we do. And we call it seeking God's will, and it's more like chasing your tail. Jesus praying, take this cup from me, yet not what I will, what you will. What is He doing? He is leaning into the character of a trustworthy God who was His Father. You've heard maybe uh, the goal of praying is not to get your will done in heaven, but God's will done on earth and in you. I think it's a good way of putting it. Because the goal of praying, asking and requesting of the God who really hears those He's given eternal life to, the goal of praying is to get more in touch with the core of what I really need and what I really want from God, which is God Himself, His presence, His person. To get in touch with that more so than the context I pray from because that context is subject to always change and fluctuate. It's fluid. The core is fixed. Let me pray. Fathers, we've had a chance to reflect on these things this morning. It's taken me a long time to order all this in my own thinking. And sometimes I wonder if I really have. Because I still experience the frustrations and the times where I wonder, Lord, what's going on? Where are you? What's going to happen? Do you care? And... Nobody tells any greater lies to me than I tell to myself. And I pray that you would, um, as you do for me, you would do for all of us, that you would continue speaking truth to us. The primary truth being, we've been greatly loved and greatly given in your Son a receptivity a responsiveness from You that is staggering to consider. And truly, on this side of the veil, we, we don't see things as they really are. We believe, as the writer of the Hebrews says, that all things are subject to You, but he also says that at present we don't see everything subject to You. But we believe it. And we believe it not as people leaping We believe it as those who are sure of what we hope for and certain of what we don't see. 
Because everything we've been told about you by your son, by his apostles, is that you're good and trustworthy and that you are not life, that you are the giver and sustainer of life, but you are not life. Life is fallen and life is broken and life will not always work. But you are not fallen and you are not broken. You're the one who gave yourself so that we could have life. And we are grateful. And Lord, in that gratitude, may our obedience be the response to a great love that we've been shown. And then in abiding in you, we find you more responsive. And we will know as that works out that it's not because we're earning it. We will know that it's because you are good and you do good. And whenever we are privileged to see the good that you do, we claim nothing of ourselves. We hold on to Christ because He is our champion. He is our God. And we are thankful to know Him and to be able to pray to you in His name. Amen.